0: Today's sermon text is 1 Samuel 20. I'll be reading a portion of that text from 1 Samuel twenty one through 17 It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 243. Hear the word of the Lord. Then David fled from Noah and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done and what is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly ask leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. And if he says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him, and therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you, if I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. And so they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness when I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day. Behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I might not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever.
1: Pray together, Father. We have your word open. We have heard you speak. Now help us to comprehend, accompany the words that I'm about to speak, and the ears that are about to hear. Sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I uh, I was reminded this week as I was studying. Um, I was reminded of my preaching professor, uh, who is also one of my mentors in preaching and pastoring. His name is Dr. Jim Shattuck's. Uh, what I was reminded of uh, was what Dr. Shattuck's did for sermon review. Um, a part of his class and just being mentored by him, you had to go out and find somewhere to preach. Whoever would hear you, whatever audience you could find, uh, nursing home, homeless shelter, a church, uh, often a small one. Um, it didn't matter. Just find an audience that would listen, preach the sermon, record it, and then send it back to him. And then he would watch the sermon. And then he would set up a time to meet with you and give you feedback. And then you would have to watch it with him as he gave you uh, feedback. And you would have to preach in front of him at times and the rest of the class or the group that you were with and get immediate uh, feedback. Um, I would say outside of just Getting experience in preaching God's word, that was the most instrumental, impactful um, thing that I walked through in terms of growing in preaching. Uh, at least anything else that I can remember. And here's what specifically came to mind about this. There was one particular thing that Dr. Shaddix pointed out to me on a number of occasions. He would probably still point it out to me. He, And it related to how he would say the the mood of the sermon needs to somewhat match the mood of the text. Something I felt at a lot back then, probably still do at times. Um, I think one of the points uh, that was made, maybe not, he was more gracious than I probably give him credit for, but one of the points was made that how I could preach John 3.16 and believers would walk away thinking they were going to hell. Just gritted teeth, John 3.16. I distinctly remember him showing me In the context of one particular sermon, how I switched from talking about hell to heaven and my demeanor never changed, seemingly making people believe the places were the same based on how I was delivering the sermon. So why do I bring this up? Well, if you know anything of 1 Samuel 20, maybe you've listened to it, maybe you've studied it, maybe you've listened to sermons on it, then you... If you did, or if you have, if you have dove into this text in particular, sat through a sermon series on it, then you probably have a better understanding of friendship than you did before you approached that text, before you studied that. Why is that? Because that's how the majority of people approach this text, through the lens of friendship. Here's one quote about this passage that bothered me this week. One particular person I respect said this about this text. And I quote, we have this story here to learn about deep, intimate friendships. Really? Is is that why we have this story here? Another pastor who obviously agrees with the first person said this. Through this passage, we will learn what it means not only to be a good friend, but to be the best of friends I got to that point in my study and I got a text from David Brown asking for certain things for the worship guide and one of them was feedback on a song of response at this point in my study I sent him friends are friends forever by Michael W. Smith (laughs) for those about my age I also sent him friends forever by Zach attack I'm curious which one he kept singing the rest of the day. I haven't asked him so. But here's the deal. Uh, I concede there's a portrait of friendship in this text, but I'll argue it's not primary. And if that's your focus in terms of making friendship primary in this text, then I think you miss the depth and you miss the aim of it. Here's what I'll tell you. If you want to see that portrait, the portrait of friendship, which is not unbiblical, then go listen to almost any other sermon besides this one. And you'll get that. So there's plenty of content out there about friendship from this text. Now, to connect this to my uh, my memory of my preaching pastor, I think one of the reasons that aiming at friendship in this text misses the mark is it misses the mood of the text. I listened to a few of those sermons on friendship from this text, and I thought they were good, but I thought they missed the mood. When you talk about friendship, things tend to lighten up a, real, a little bit. I do think those sermons were helpful, but the mood was missed. Okay. There's little about this text, in my opinion, that's light. Okay. If you heard it in what you, what was read already. David thinks he's one step away from death. A part we'll read in a minute. There's a father throwing a spear at a son. It ends with weeping and a bitter parting of ways. The mood in this text is not light. But when you're talking about friendship, things tend to lighten up. And those sermons that I heard were were pretty light. So friendship may be here, but it's not primary. In fact, Ryan probably could have simply added this chapter to what he preached last week. He set the stage. If you were here and you heard the sermon, the stage is set for where this text plays out. This has to do with one's posture toward the anointed king. So we're just adding to that. I think there's different dimensions that we can add from this text, but Ryan could have simply continued on. So if you missed last week, you can go back and listen to what was an excellent sermon. One, one that would give a lot more color to what I'm about to say. I think these could be held together in one continuing message. So there's an endorsement of last week hopefully I do this week justice. All right. Now that you probably think I hate friendship and uh struggle with with being in a bad mood Let's see if we can progress through this. And I know uh, for those that are getting used to and love the notes that Ryan provides, I don't do that. I'm sorry. Uh, you get some bullet points on a screen and get to take some notes. So uh, I will try and mimic one thing that Ryan does that I think is very uh, helpful. He gives a main point. Anybody think the main point is helpful? Like this, this is the main point of the text. You got two people, two. So <laughs> just saying, I think it was the Miley's. raised their hands. So you may want to stop doing that. Um, but I think it's helpful. So here's my attempt to be more like Ryan this morning, which means I'm going to be less moody and more kind. Uh, again, this text may present a case study on friendship, but primarily I see Jonathan as a model for how we're supposed to respond to and submit to God's anointed king. I'm going to get to the main point here in a second. I think. This is the line of thinking that Ryan started for us last week in showing us the contrast between how Jonathan responded and how Saul responded. Jonathan's response to the king comes more into focus in this particular chapter. I think the case for Saul's already been made. We get a little more on Saul, but the focus is on Jonathan. In terms of a human character, Jonathan is the focus. He, the most, the most speaking parts, the most words all pertain to Jonathan. Now, if you were to go through and look at all the references to the Lord, you would say God is the primary character. But Jonathan is certainly the primary human character. He gets a lot of words and a lot of focus. Um, unfortunately, I didn't put this on the screen. I was afraid it might be wrong. If you say main point, you've got to be really confident. So I'm not putting it on the screen. We'll just see if you can write it down. If I were to give you a main point, it would be something like this. Loyalty to the true king, to God's anointed king. So loyalty to the true king is essential. It is costly, but it's also rewarding. Okay, You could make that a little shorter. Loyalty to the true king is essential, costly and rewarding. You can thank Ryan for that one. All right. Now that we've spoiled the point, let's get to the text. Uh, Two main sections today. You'll see this on your screen. First, we're going to look at five dramatic scenes Basically, I mean, this is a really compelling narrative, a great story. So we're just going to walk through it kind of scene by scene, piece by piece and just unpack it a little bit. Make sure we got our our head around it. And then we'll close with three vital implications, uh, three implications that will all center around this idea of loyalty around the main point that I just gave you. So to set the stage, there's a lot of build up, a sort of lengthy build up to run fairly quickly through that main point through some implications all right let's go five dramatic scenes um and they're and and these are my scenes okay so i think you in terms of actual scenes when they move from place to place it would be different I broke it into scenes that I think are helpful for just unpacking and understanding it. So you get to be creative when you make the outline. Um, I think making verses 12 through 17, its own little scene, uh, really help, even though that's a pause in the progression of the story in a sense. So first scene, we have a humble meeting, a humble meeting. This is verses uh, one through four. You uh, you heard you heard this read already, so. Um, at the end of our time last week, David it was in Ramah hanging out, really hiding out uh, with Samuel. Now David's on the move again. And this time he's seeking out Jonathan, Saul's son, but also David's loyal friend. So we've been introduced to this, chapters 18 and 19. Saul has been trying to kill David, so David is in a bind. He goes to Samuel, now he's coming to Jonathan. And it's not without reason that he ends up seeking out Jonathan. And I'm calling this a humble meeting on purpose. Obviously, I would label David's posture as humble. Notice he doesn't come to Jonathan saying, your dad's crazy and he's trying to kill me. What's up? Look what he says. Verse one. What have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before Saul, your father, that he seeks my life? We have no reason not to take his words at face value. He wants to know. He is seeking out, have I wronged the king in some way? He starts by looking at his himself. He's doing some self-examination. He comes off as genuinely interested in knowing if he's done something wrong. And this is where we see that Jonathan is a bit naive about where his father is at this point. Verse 2, far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. Why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. You could say there was an attempt at reconciliation in chapter 19. Maybe, maybe Jonathan thought that was successful. And it's obvious that Saul, Saul's keeping his plans, his ongoing plans from Jonathan. So you can give Jonathan a little bit of, you know, a little bit of leeway here for being so naive. David steps in, tries to graciously correct Jonathan, verse 3, paraphrased. Your dad knows you're loyal to me. He's not telling you everything. Your dad is trying to kill me. Based on the rest of the story, we know Jonathan's not yet convinced. It's going to take a minute for him to be convinced. We'll get to that. But he's loyal. So he basically ends this scene by saying, what can I do? Whatever it is, just let me know how I can help. Which takes us to the next scene, or at least a change in the direction of the conversation. Next, we have a curious strategy. This scene is actually broken up by verses 12 through 17. So this scene is verses 5 through 10 and verses 18 through 23. The first part is the plan. The second part is how they're going to communicate about whether or not the plan, uh, what happens in the plan, how it, how it, you know, the, the end result of it, so to speak. So we've already read most of this, so I'll simply just try to paraphrase, starting in verse 5. There's an important feast coming up, okay? And David, as a, as a member of the royal court, he's expected to attend. It's hard for me to believe, based on everything that's happened, that he's actually expected to attend. But I'm not an expert in ancient Near Eastern politics and customs. The meal was important. The king's court is supposed to be there. And we know that Saul wants to kill David, so I think he expects him there for, for a reason. I think david knows full well what's up the plan is to get jonathan to understand what's happening jonathan again seems a little naive certainly in the dark on his father's plan so this is david's plan i'm going to get jonathan up to speed with where i'm at i want him to find out where his dad is okay so david is going to skip the meal okay that's the plan if Saul asked about it, then David gave Jonathan. Jonathan has a story to tell his father, Saul. If Saul is good with that plan, then maybe, maybe things are okay. If Saul is not good with the plan that Jonathan and David came up with, then then we've got some clarity on where Saul currently stands. Okay, Jonathan's kind of in the loop at that point, and David's confirmed he still wants to kill me. It's at this point I think we also see there's an aspect of testing going on between David and Jonathan. Look at verse eight. David appeals to Jonathan's covenant with him. Go back to chapter eighteen to see that. We'll hit we'll hit more on this in the next scene. Sort of a renewal of this covenant. But we see we see continued humility there in verse eight. If there's guilt in me, if I've sinned against the king, then you kill me, Jonathan. If I if you find out that I've sinned, then you just take me out. But his appeal to Jonathan's loyalty here seems to be primary. David needs to know that he can trust Jonathan. He's about to send him back to the guy that wants to kill him. I need to make sure you're in with me. Okay, we're good. We're on the same page. Verse nine, Jonathan pledges his loyalty. If I know he means you harm, then you'll know about it. I'm going to tell you. To which David wisely replies in verse 10, how? How are you going to tell me we we kind of need to work this out? This is this is a testy situation. How are we going to figure this out? So they walk out into the field, come up with a plan of communication, which is what we see in verses 18 through 23. We didn't read this earlier, so read it. Let's read it now. Verse 18, then Jonathan said to him. Tomorrow is the new moon and you will be missed because your seat will be empty on the third day. Go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was at hand and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy saying, go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, look, the arrows are on this side of you. Take them. Then you are to come for as the Lord lives. It is safe for you and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, "Look, the arrows are beyond you," then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you have spoken, which which I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. Okay, shoot some arrows if they're one side, you're good. Shoot some arrows if they're somewhere else, you're bad. Okay, you would think there's an easier way to communicate, but that's sort of our modern, you know, just send a text would be a lot easier, right? Yep, you're good come on back or nope, it's bad, keep running kind of thing. But we've got fields, we've got bow, bows and arrows, we've got certain verbiage, you've got a servant involved, but there's a plan nonetheless, okay? It's a curious plan, but there's a plan. Now, one particular part about this plan that tends to trip people up that we need to just hit on for just a second. The plan appears to involve Lying. Jonathan is going to have to lie to his father to see this plan through. And David kind of in on coming up with the lie. He's not really going to Bethlehem to offer a sacrifice. That's not going to happen. It's a test. So this presents a question, at least to a lot of people that read this text. Maybe you didn't have the question. Then maybe now I'm putting it in your minds and I apologize for that. But is lying okay? Does this violate the ninth commandment? That's a great question. Okay. Many would say this is an instance of when scripture is recording an event, but not endorsing an event. That makes sense? It's recording an event, but not endorsing it. It's reporting, but not recommending. That's a principle that you need to take with you as you read the Old Testament. A lot of events are recorded, but not recommended. Okay. They're not endorsed. Just because the Bible says something doesn't mean it's an endorsement of it. That will get you off track in so many ways. So I think this story falls in that category. But the question still remains, what do you do with this or the story or better yet, the, the story, if, 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 you know, the, the Hebrew midwives, for instance. What do you do with them? We do, do with Rahab. You go outside of the Bible. What do you do with somebody like Corey Ten Boom? Is lying okay if it produces good? Well, there's an argument to be made that there's a sort of ethical hierarchy that the lies in question in those stories and those events preserved innocent life. Therefore, the spirit of the law was not violated. Okay, there is a nuanced argument for that. Here's what I'll say. First, I think that's a legitimate argument, but you need to be very careful with it. OK, a very nuanced argument you need to be very careful with. Even those who make that argument would say it is very rare where you should have to apply that. OK, second, and this especially goes for the kids in the room. If you want to know if lying is OK, Pastor Ryan will be at the kiosk when the gathering is over. No. No. All right, moving on. Next scene. Don't go. To, come talk to me. I'm not going to do that to you. Talk to your parents first and come talk to me. A renewed covenant. Next scene. A renewed covenant. Verses 12 through 17. You heard this read earlier. I think this would be like the theological heart of the passage. Jonathan pledges his loyalty. I'm going to tell you how this plays out, David. Trust me. He invokes the Lord in the pledge. God is my witness. But God, strike me down if I don't tell you. Then In the end of verse 13, he alludes to something we already know about Jonathan that he is well aware of and has accepted that David is God's anointed king. May the Lord be with you, future tense, as he's been, past tense, with my father. And then maybe the heart of this particular section, verse 14, if I make it out of this, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. Verse 15, don't cut me off from your steadfast love. That phrase, steadfast love, that, that's so central to this text in much of the Bible. It's from the Hebrew hesed. Just a rich theological term, thick word points to something like a covenantal or committed love. There's a strong element of loyalty attached to love in this word. If you have the NIV, if you're using that translation, it says unfailing kindness right there. That's what points to the loyalty part. It's not just kindness. It's not just love. It's not just mercy. It's it's an unfailing, unending, steadfast version of those. In Exodus 34, we're told that the Lord abounds in this sort of love. He abounds. It's just flowing out of him. I want you to note that Jonathan is appealing to this sort of love through David. Jonathan wants David to show him God's steadfast love. Jonathan knows that God's kindness to him comes through David, through God's anointed king. Notice the order there of the text. Jonathan knows that God's steadfast love flows through God's anointed king. You can hang on to that note. Hopefully that clicks a little bit. Things get deeper here. Verse 15, when Jonathan appeals to David for him not to be cut off from his love, he adds, don't cut me off when all the enemies of David are eliminated. That's rich as well. And something we'll come back to. But but does Jonathan know yet that his dad would fall in that category of the enemies that will be eliminated? I think Jonathan is certainly aware of the customs of that day. Okay, when a new line, new kingly line comes in, what happens to the old one? They get they get purged. Jonathan is appealing to David to act differently. We'll see this request come back up and be honored later on in Samuel. Verse 16, another covenant or renewal of the covenant already made in previous chapters again an appeal to the for the Lord to take vengeance on David's enemies. I think part of Jonathan's aim is to show David how committed he is. May the Lord eliminate your enemies. God forbid I even be one of them. Like, I'm loyal to you. May the Lord get rid of anybody that's not, including me. And this scene ends with something we've seen before, the depth of commitment that Jonathan and David have for one another. commitment that is in this chapter having to bear a lot of weight. Next scene next we have a depressing verdict verses 24 through 34. Let's read this. We didn't read this before. Verse 24. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat as at other times on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day for he thought something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city. And my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food for the sec no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. So the plan worked. The tyrant has been drawn out. Jonathan's pretty clear on where things stand. I think it's pretty straightforward. They gather for the meal. Everybody takes their seats. Saul sits at the table like any cop going to a restaurant. Make sure you can see the door, that nobody's behind your back. You know everything that's going on. You're a little fearful if you're sitting up against the wall. No big deal. David's absent the first day. There are a lot of non-sinful reasons why you would be unclean and couldn't come to a ceremony uh, like this. By the way, just what's striking here is how deranged Saul has become, even before he hurls a spear at his son in thinking that maybe David didn't come because I tried to kill him. David should just be here. Maybe he's unclean. Just forget everything that's already happened. Just has lost his mind. But we get to the next day. There's a problem. David is still missing. Now Saul is asking Jonathan implements what is a what I would call a somewhat embellished version of the plan. Nothing about David's brother in the strategy, but Jonathan thought it was necessary. How does Saul respond? Verse thirty, not well. I'm not going to say the comment about Jonathan's mother is flattering for her, but the primary aim there is saying that Jonathan's actions are bringing shame on his family. Jonathan's actions bring shame on his mother. Note the change in verse 31 of how he even refers to David. It's no longer David, it's the son of Jesse. And that's where you see Saul's true motive. It's about preservation for his kingdom and his line. With the son of Jesse out of the picture, Saul's dynasty can continue. What does Jonathan do? He pushes back. He's innocent. What has David done? And then we have the moment Jonathan finally gets the clarity he needs in the situation. I imagine it opens your eyes when your dad hurls a spear at you. He obviously eludes it. Verse 32, verse 33 makes it clear. Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And we see how Jonathan reacts further. Verse 34, he's angry. He's filled with grief. But did you notice how, it, where his grief is aimed? Did you pick up on that as we read it? What is he grieved for? Grieved, I'm sure he's grieved that his dad just hurled a spear at him, okay, and basically just cursed him out. I'm sure he's grieved by that, but the text says he's grieved for David, the Lord's anointed, and how he had disgraced him. He is grieved at how Saul has disgraced the true king. Jonathan could not demonstrate more loyalty to God's anointed one than he is here. He's grieved when someone defames the glory of the king. He seems more worried about the fame and the reputation and the glory of the king than he is about the loss of his family and his title and everything that he knows. A lot we could chase down there, but we move on. last scene. lastly, we have a hopeful farewell, a hopeful farewell. There's verses thirty five through forty two let's read this verse thirty five in the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy, and he said to his boy, Run and find the arrows that I shoot.' As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that, that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his to his boy and said to him, go and carry them into the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the, the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. So 35 through 40, it's the implementation of the communication plan. You get to verse 41, you get an obvious deviation from the plan. Apparently the need for secrecy is over. David just comes out. Just doesn't seem to matter at this point. David falls to the ground in grief. He knows what this means. The next chapters to come will detail how difficult his life will become as a result of this news. He also knows this means separation from Jonathan and from so much else. So the scene is pretty tragic. But there is hope signaled here. Verse 42. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace. Why? Not because his life is going to get easier. But because the Lord is in it. The Lord is between us and he'll be so forever, according to Jonathan here. We'll come back to this in a minute as well. But there's hope and there's hope because God's in the matter. God's involved. That's why there's hope. The the confidence of the go in peace part is not because Jonathan or David are involved. It's because God is. That's key. Something you need to hang on to. And then they depart. The end. Curtains close. Not really. You just have to wait until next week. and the coming weeks to see what comes next. Or you can just read ahead. Like, you have a Bible. Read ahead. And then let Ryan just sort of put some color to it and bring it to life for you. But that's the story of this chapter. At least in summary form. Alright? So, let's take that and draw out some implications. So, now we have three... Vital implications. Um, I mentioned early on, these will revolve around this idea of loyalty. Again, themes here applicable to friendship. I, I was probably a little harsh on everybody that preaches about friendship, not saying that's unbiblical. But primarily, Jonathan is a model of how we are supposed to respond to and submit to God's anointed king. Again, Ryan helped us see that last week. We're just carrying it into this week. So what do we learn from this model? A lot. But at least this. Okay, I said this earlier. Loyalty to the true king is essential, costly, and rewarding. Okay, essential, costly, and rewarding. So let's frame these implications around those three. I want to look at the essence of loyalty according to what we see here, the cost of loyalty, and then in terms of the reward, I want to look at the promises of loyalty. Okay? First, the essence of loyalty. Okay. This is where we go back to something that's repeated throughout. But something I mentioned as the heart of the text, if we go back to the scene there, think back to the scene of the renewed covenant there in 12 through 17, you have Jonathan again. He's appealing to the steadfast love, the hesed of God. And he does so through David. Okay, through David, God's anointed king. So I would say the essence of loyalty is mercy or unfailing kindness. Or probably better said, loyalty is grounded in or rooted in the unfailing kindness, the unending mercy and goodness and love of God. You fast forward to the New Testament, you see almost identical language, very similar language in Ephesians chapter two. So we're not going to turn there, but you think on Ephesians chapter two and it starts off. With a description of our sad, pathetic, spiritual state. Dead in our sins. Separated from God. Following after Satan. Children of wrath. Like, none of that's good if you don't understand that language. All bad. Sad, spiritual state. But then you get to verse 4. And you get, but God. And it says, but God being rich in Mercy Has said because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. Here's the deal. Did Jonathan appeal to his acts or his morality or his goodness when seeking favor? No, he appealed to the unfailing, never faltering kindness and love of God. Jonathan was living out the truths of Ephesians 2 well before it was ever penned. What's the basis for dead sinners being made alive? The rich mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Christ, Jonathan's loyalty was rooted in God's unending mercy. The foundation, the essence here is God's mercy, his loving kindness, not Jonathan's acts of morality or goodness or anything else. Got a living example today. So we have have baptisms. Super exciting. OK, we need we need to advertise those, by the way, from now. On. Was it in the email? Like, let everybody know we have baptism coming. Like, get excited. So Hudson Walker is publicly joining the ranks today. Don't worry, kids or shy adults. Uh, I don't which I don't preach that often, but uh, this not. I won't call everybody out that I get the chance to call out. OK, I pick on Hudson because I think he likes it. He picks on me, uh, gives me a hard time. I think he's the one that sends random, weird text that I don't understand with all kind of. Yes. Yeah, anyways, so I'm not going to do this to everybody. So just be a, don't don't shy away from baptism because you might get talked about. Uh, but Hudson, I, I want to. Make use of you to make sure something is clear to everyone. So Hudson is making a public profession of his faith today. He's proclaiming today what the Lord has done in his life to rescue him from his sin. He's taking an important step of obedience. When he walks down those stairs into that water and reads his testimony, In no uncertain terms, he is saying, Jesus is my king. And he is telling us and the world where his loyalties lie. But here's what's key. He's doing that because of the rich mercy of God. Because in God's kindness, He has heard Jessica's prayers and Kyle's prayers and Hudson's own prayers and family prayers for him to be saved. Prayers of some of you for children here to be saved. Prayers that have been prayed from right here. Maybe not naming Hudson, but begging the Lord to save and God has looked at Hudson and he has said definitively and decisively, mine. He is mine. And Hudson did the only thing a dead sinner can do when that call is made. He walked out of the grave and he bowed the knee and he pledged allegiance to the king. Hudson, you, you got to this point today. Because of the unfailing mercy and love of God. You will make it from this point because of the same thing. Remember that, live by that, and that will be of unending help to you and to everybody else in here. So, i just press the pause button there, call a quick time out. Because nothing else I have said or will say is important unless you get this point. Either... You live resting in God's unfailing mercy or in something else that is and will be found out to be insufficient. Based on how the culture catechizes most of us, either you will rest in your own self-sufficiency, self-exaltation, self-promotion or self-worth, or you will rest in the steadfast love of the Lord. The text from Ephesians sums it all up for us. It sums it, it, it speaks to every one of us. We are all dead in sin apart from the mercy of God. That is a summation of every one of us. Known Hudson most of his life. Great kid, great young man. I can attest to that. A lot of us can attest to that. But apart from Christ, he was a dead sinner on a path to eternal hell. But God, who is rich in mercy, has provided a way. The sin we are all liable for, the punishment we deserve for defaming a holy God, that sin has been taken by Christ and nailed to his cross. So, there's a question for every single one of us. A question that Hudson has answered. Where is your Allegiance to King Jesus, to King you, or to King something or someone else. Hudson's about to make his allegiance known. Anybody want to join him? If you have questions on what that means, I would love to talk with you after. I know Ryan would love to talk with you after as well. Talk to someone. For now, let's... Push forward, the essence of loyalty is God's unfailing love. Next, let's look at the cost of loyalty, the cost of loyalty. There's truth in counting the cost beforehand of what it means to pledge your allegiance to the king. We have texts in the New Testament on this. We can't sugar poke, sugarcoat part of what it means to follow Christ. Christ's own words are hard to swallow at times about the cost of following him, about counting the cost of following him. Brian was kind in a sermon recently where he didn't want to specifically call out the likes of someone like Joel Osteen. Okay? There was a very specific hint that was blatant. But I'm not that kind. I think he's a heretic that are leading people astray. Your best life now is a load of junk. Has some truth embedded in it. But that truth is used in a misleading way to say it as charitably as I can say it. What he means by best life does not line up with what this says. You know who missed out on Osteen's best life now? The apostles. Paul. John, saints to come after them, Jim Elliott, Adoniram Judson, C.T. Studd, their families. Given a lot on how costly the Christian life can be, Ryan hit on this last week as well. Jonathan is an example, a stark example of this. This was made clear in earlier chapters, but it's hit on again. Jonathan is heir to the throne, but he's giving up those rights to the true king. He's not navigating this with self-interest. He's not seeking his own kingdom first. He's seeking another kingdom. He knows that the throne of God does not have two seats. He's also enduring suffering, the same suffering as God's anointed king. It's as... It's like Jesus had Jonathan in mind when you get to Matthew 10 and Luke 14 and John 15. One of these texts we read earlier. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. The same spear. That went at Jonathan's uh, David's head, went at Jonathan. Brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child. If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother, if your love for me does not make your love for your father and mother look like hate, then something is wrong. To follow Christ sets you up to be hated like Christ. To follow Christ sets you up to suffer like Christ. To follow Christ sets up division even within families. Jonathan, a vivid example of that. Yes, themes of friendship are here, but the themes of costly loyalty are much more pronounced. Don't look to Jonathan and David first and foremost on how to be a good friend. Look Look to Jonathan first and foremost regarding what it might cost to follow the true king. Jonathan picked up his cross and followed after God's king. There's multiple sermons here on the cost of discipleship, but that's going to have to wait for now. We just see in Jonathan an example of the price that may come with allegiance to the king. It definitely means... You lose allegiance to whatever your notion of kingdom was before, but for many in various forms and in fall, it involves receiving the sufferings of Christ as he was mocked. You may be mocked as he was ridiculed. You may be ridiculed as he was persecuted. So you may be persecuted as he was killed. So you may be killed. But but there's always more to the story in Christianity, there may be cost in following the king but there's even greater reward which leads to our last point the promises of loyalty again multiple sermons here but two promises that I think are highlighted in this text presence and peace the promise of God's presence and the promise of God's peace this was hit on previous chapters also very apparent here this idea of God's presence is clear. Jonathan appeals to the Lord on a number of occasions under the assumption that the Lord is with his people. Why the appeals? If he doesn't assume the Lord's with his people, he makes references to the Lord being between, with him and David, showing love to them. Repeated reference of that. Even a reference that adds forever in there. Jonathan alludes to what we as christians can rest assured in god's presence remains with god's people those loyal to the king get the sovereign presence of the king so many places we could go and look to that but the great commission is like the layup for this truth what is what is the great commission bracketed with i have all authority and in the commission And I will be with you always to the end of the age. I've got it all and I'm not leaving you now. Now go make disciples. I love the words of Isaiah 42 here. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you and through the rivers. They shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. Why? Why? In the words of Isaiah, because I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. The promise of loyalty is presence. It's also peace. Very end of our passage. Go in peace. How? Why? Because the Lord's in it. Because he's between me and you. You take what he says there at the end, you combine it with verse 15. Show me steadfast love when you might want to underline that in verse 15. Show me steadfast love when not if, but when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. We're going to see sort of the near fulfillment of that in the weeks to come and how that will come about for David. But we also know how it plays out for the greater David. We know that one day every enemy of Christ will become a footstool for his feet. Jonathan said when this happens, not if. First Corinthians also says when death is swallowed up, not if. It's when, not If our king wins. The idea of peace among amongst difficulty doesn't make a whole lot of worldly sense. You mean there's you mean there's cost and there's peace. You mean there's there's trial and tribulations and hardship and peace. Is that what you're saying? No, it's not what I'm saying. It's what the Bible is saying. Listen to it over what I have to say. Christians don't have peace because the world is peaceful. Christians have peace because Christ has secured it. God's people endure now for something certain later. The peace of God comes through the presence of God and the promises of God. Jonathan embodies that for us. A very vivid example. How can Jonathan joyfully accept the loss of his own kingdom, the loss of his family. How can he do that? Because he knew a better kingdom was coming and he knew he had a father in heaven. I wanted to share more on this, but I certainly need to end. It, it, it was hard for me this week not to think about Jim Elliot as I'm reading this text. Even the method Saul uses to try to kill both David and Jonathan. Jim Elliott, if you don't know him, him and his companions were speared to death in 1957 in a remote area in Ecuador by a tribe they were trying to take the gospel to. A tribe that would later come to Christ through the ministry of the very family and companions who had been killed. text reminds me of very famous words of Jim Elliott He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. To gain that which you cannot lose. The world will tell you the cost of loyalty to follow God's anointed king is is foolish. That cost of loyalty is is foolish. But those that know the king, like Eliot did, know it to be otherwise. Know it to be flipped on its head. As Eliot puts so well, you aren't foolish to give what you will lose anyways to gain what you can Never lose. So we bow to the king. Yes. We count the cost. Yes, it's legitimate. But we rest in the reward. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for examples of what it looks like to follow your king. Thank you that you have not left us without example and instruction. We pray that this would reside deep in our hearts and affect our lives. Father, we pray you would draw any to yourself that don't now, aren't now bowing to this king and pledging allegiance. We entrust that to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.